right, so while the sparrows and kids are getting situated, um, let me go ahead and introduce myself. I think I know everybody here, but in case I don't, my name's John, and I'm one of the elders here at Wayside, so I am not been the pastor. I'm not the person that's usually standing up here right now. Um, as we saw starting last week with Chris, and now uh, me today, and we'll have Kevin up here next week, we're going through a time of giving Ben and the Brummett family a much-needed season of some rest from preparing from sermons while they move into their new rent house from the house fire and deal with everything else that's going on in life. Um, so it's a joy to do that. And uh, for me, when I'm sitting out there hearing the other elders preach, I really appreciate it because it's always good to just hear new perspectives, new styles of how they can present the word. Um, so today we're going to be going through Acts chapter 8, um, verses 5 through 25. So y'all can go ahead and get your Bibles turned there. Uh, and while you're getting there, I want to give us a little bit of the context of where we've been so far in Acts um, so that we can understand what's happening in the story today. So as a reminder of big picture, Acts was written by Luke. It's the sequel to his gospel where he tells the events of Jesus's life. And now he's continuing, um, starting with the ascension of Jesus and telling the work of the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. So back in Acts 1-8, where we started, and I guess it was like four or five months ago now, um, we have Jesus still there, the risen Jesus with his followers, and his last words right before he ascends kind of set up a framework for the rest of the book of Acts. <clears throat> in Acts 1-8, right before he ascends, he tells his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So for our first few months here in Acts, we've been in that first section. We've been in Jerusalem. So we've seen the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles at Pentecost, and then through the power of the Holy Spirit, we've seen uh, miraculous works uh, in Jerusalem. We've seen the gospel proclaimed to the people of Jerusalem, and we've seen some beautiful examples of Christian fellowship, especially in Acts 2 and 4 uh, that we've taught on already. <clears throat> Um, and we've seen the church grow, right? We've seen the church grow from a group of about 120 who were there uh, with Jesus when he ascended to thousands of people in and around Jerusalem. So along with that growth, we've seen persecution. And we talked about that last week when Chris was preaching, but we've seen uh, the resistance of the Jewish leadership, which started with just questioning the apostles, then escalated to imprisoning them, and eventually to the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, at the end of chapter 7. Um, but as Chris discussed last week, rather than suppressing the spread of the gospel, that persecution actually caused it to spread beyond the walls of Jerusalem and actually caused it to fulfill that parting command of Jesus. So now we're here in Acts 8, moving into this second section of the surrounding regions of all Judea and Samaria. So before we get into the details today, um, I want to pray for us. Lord, you're good, you're powerful, you're wise, you're gracious and merciful. We, <clears throat> we praise you this morning. Lord, we thank you for this morning, for this space, for the sunlight pouring through the windows of this public school building where we are freely allowed to worship you and to teach your name. Um, we, as we think about this early persecution, we just rejoice that we're in a place where we can do this freely. And we Lift up those around the world who don't share that privilege. We pray that your spirit would encourage them 
embolden them and protect them and that your name uh, would be spread and you would be made great in those places. Lord, for those who are here this morning and those who are listening online, I just pray that you would uh, focus our hearts. You would set aside distractions. You would set aside whatever to-do list we walked in here with to prepare for this evening or this coming week or upcoming vacations, whatever it might be, Lord, that uh, we would put those aside and we would uh, just be able to focus on your word and focus on who you are this morning, that we could come to know you better. I pray that your spirit would speak um, to me and through me and would speak directly to uh, the people who are hearing me this morning. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, Excuse me. Water break. Um, So as we're going, like I said, out of Jerusalem, into these regions of all Judea and Samaria and Acts 8, we're going to begin to see this recurring theme of contrasting responses to the gospel message. So this starts off uh, right here in our passage today where um, Philip is going to go out to Samaria and the Samaritans are going to respond joyfully and accept the gospel in sharp contrast to what we just saw in Jerusalem where the leaders are persecuting the apostles for spreading the gospel. But then even within this group of Samaritans, we're going to see a contrast between the general response of the people and the response of a specific man named Simon. While most of the Samaritans in our story today are going to receive the gospel with joy, Simon witnesses the signs of the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's so distracted by them that he misses out on the glory of Jesus Christ. So church, just like the Samaritans that we're going to hear about today, we can respond to signs of the gospel's power in two ways. We can allow them to direct us to Christ, leading to a saving faith and glorifying God, or we can allow them to distract us from Christ leading to empty faith and glorifying ourselves. So let's get into our passage today. In the very beginning, we're going to see that positive response. Uh, We're going to see the Samaritan people who see the signs of the power of Christ, and they're directed to the truth of the gospel, leading to saving faith and a life of joy in Christ. So we'll turn in and start actually back at verse 4, just to lead into our passage today. So this is just after the killing of Stephen caused the followers of Christ to be scattered out of Jerusalem. So we're reading first about those followers in general and then Philip specifically. Acts 8.4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So before we go on, we need to ask a couple questions about the text that we just read as good Bible readers. And... Right there, we have a man named Philip and a place named Samaria, and we have to know a little bit about those two things to understand the context of this story we're about to read. And while I would love to show my work and go through the whole process of how we find the answers to things like that within the Bible itself, um, I'm one verse down and there's 20 to go, and I don't want y'all to be here all day, so I'm going to be really quick. So first off, who is Philip? Um, We heard about him first back in Acts chapter 6. He's one of the deacons that were appointed Uh, to serve and meet the needs of the church so that the apostles could focus on preaching the word, Um, which for me is encouraging and convicting to know that this guy was um, not appointed to be a preacher. He was appointed to serve, and he's gifted and blessed in service, and I feel like I'm much more gifted in service and logistics, and yet um, I'm called to proclaim the gospel wherever I am, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like Philip, I'm able to do that. He's the first recorded Christian missionary. So from this group of seven deacons, we had first 
Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and now Philip, the first Christian missionary, um, who goes out to spread the gospel to these surrounding regions. Uh, and the next time we're going to hear about him in Acts is all the way in Acts 21, verse 8, which is 20 years after the events of Acts 8. As Paul is returning to Jerusalem for the last time, he stops in at the house of Philip. And Luke there calls him Philip the Evangelist. So based on that title that's given to him, we can safely assume that he continued his uh, ministry of spreading the gospel and his evangelism uh, throughout his life. So next up, what is Samaria? And this one would take a full 30-minute history lesson about the split of the tribes of Israel and Jerusalem and the exile back in uh, Chronicles and Kings, and I definitely don't have time for that. So <clears throat> let me just use the um, aside that the Apostle John uses in, uh, in John chapter 4 when Jesus is entering that area, and he says that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans which is a massive understatement because these two groups of people absolutely hate each other and have centuries of tension between um, these two people groups. And so really what we see in the New Testament, though, once Jesus comes on the scene, is every time the Samaritans are mentioned, it's in a positive light. And often it's even in a positive light in contrast to the Jewish leadership who should be accepting the Messiah and being obedient to the law of God. And yet we see Today in our passage and through most of the New Testament, the Samaritans are actually set up uh, as the ones who are obedient and responsive to the gospel message. Okay, so now we have a little bit of context. We get to get to the real point of this first verse, which is what Philip is actually doing there in Samaria. He's proclaiming to them the Christ. So Luke is going to repeat this kind of um, action several times throughout chapter 8 with some different wording. We see in verse 4, he says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Here in verse 5, Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. At the end of our passage in verse 25, as the apostles are returning to Jerusalem, they're preaching the gospel to many villages along the way. And next week, at the end of chapter 8 and verse 40, um, Philip is still there preaching the gospel to all the towns until he comes to Caesarea. So while he's headed on to his next place, he's preaching the gospel along the way. And as I go through today, um, I'm going to be talking about, and using this word signs, and talking about how the Samaritans responded to signs of Jesus Christ that were meant to direct them to Jesus Christ. And I want to avoid any confusion with that term because there are going to be some miraculous healings and casting out of demons in this passage. But I want to make it clear that the primary sign that was given to the people of Samaria and the primary sign given to us to direct us to Christ is the gospel message. It's right here in the word of God, uh, the revelation of God through the scriptures. In John 1.18, at the beginning of his gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship to the father has revealed him or has made him known. Then at the end of John's gospel, he explains the purpose of his gospel by saying, he has written these things down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So church, I just want to make that clear that Jesus walked the earth to reveal the character of God and the gospel accounts along with the rest of the Bible are provided so that we can know God. We can know his character and we can have a relationship with him. So when we see these miraculous signs today in Acts and anywhere else as we're continuing through Acts, um, It's important to remember that these are used to reinforce the gospel message. The message that Jesus Christ is God, 
But he lived a sinless life. He died for our sins, and he rose from the dead into eternity and invites us to spend that eternity with him in relationship with him. Everything else the apostles do in Acts and everything else we do as a church today is created to direct us to that simple truth. So let's move forward into the rest of the passage, and we're going to see the response to Philip's proclamation of Christ, starting back in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And then picking up in verse 12, it says, When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Church, what an incredible account of the first recorded response to a Christian missionary, right? This is like the dream reaction when you're a missionary going into what you think is a hostile territory. Philip going to these people who are historically his enemy. He walks in, he proclaims to them Jesus, and they all believe, they accept his gospel, they're baptized, and they rejoice. This is the true good and logical response to that gospel message, right? It's what it's intended to do. This is what those miraculous signs Philip performed there for the Samaritans are intended to create in those people. They're intended to direct glory and praise to God and lead to a saving faith that brings about joy. And church, when I read about this passage, read about the great joy in that city and just think about experiencing great joy at the wondrous power of God, my mind always goes first to nature. Um, And I know that's not just me. We just sang about it in You're Beautiful that um, the stars are proclaiming his name. Uh, And even in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans at the very beginning, he explains that God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So for me, the specific piece of creation that most takes my mind to God's eternal power and divine nature is Yosemite Valley. Um, now, I've only been there a few times in my life, but I absolutely love it, and I think I could go back um, every year or multiple times a year and not get sick of it. Uh, one of the things I really love about it is the way that its, its beauty can kind of sneak up on you. For me, at least, the first time I went there, I entered from the southwest side. So you're coming in along Highway 120, winding along these mountain ridges. Then you turn through the Wawona Tunnel, which cuts through a ridge of the mountain, and it stretches for almost a mile. So you drive through the darkness of this tunnel where you can't see anything other than concrete and these electric lights. Then at the end of the tunnel, you emerge to this view. You emerge from the darkness of the tunnel and you see this with El Cap and Bridalvale Falls and Half Dome right there in the middle, and I just cannot help but glorify God. And while I would really love to spend now the next 20 minutes just going through a slideshow of Yosemite pictures and telling you about them, that would be completely the opposite of my purpose in being here today. See, the whole point of this story about Yosemite is that just like the miraculous signs we're going to read about in Acts, the beauty of creation on display at places like Yosemite is intended to direct us to God. And taking that back a level, even to arrive at that destination and experience that beauty, you have to follow signs and maps and things that direct you to that. Or now you just pull up your iPhone and follow that map. But either way, you need something that directs you to that beauty. And 
when you see those signs, like we have a sign here, sign, very informative sign. If you go to this sign and you don't follow that direction, this is completely useless, right? This only exists to direct you to the glory of something else. When the Samaritans in our story hear that gospel message and see those miraculous signs, their proper response is to be directed to Jesus. If they don't take that step to be directed to Jesus, those signs are useless. And just like the Samaritans, when we hear the gospel message, it has to direct us to Jesus. We're called to receive that gospel message and believe it and live according to it. Jesus said that he came to give us an abundant life. What he intends for us is an abundant and joyful life. And that's a life that's abundant and joyful, not because of well-being or our circumstances. We are certainly not promised safety or health or riches in this world. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But we are called to a joyful and abundant life that is rooted in our knowledge of who Jesus is, his unconditional love for us, and the eternal perspective that we have in light of that. So as we continue with our passage today, um, we're going to get into the flip side of this, the other possible response to signs of God's power and to the gospel message. So let's turn back to Acts 8 to read the story of Simon, who rather than being directed to Christ is distracted by the power of the Holy Spirit, by those signs of the power. So let's start back in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for be- because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So we need to stop right there because there's some crazy stuff that we just read in this verse, right? We are just talking about magic in the Bible. And maybe some of you, when I read this, you're getting really excited that I'm about to just go through a definitive answer of what this magic is and what it's talking about and why it's used here. And I'm going to really disappoint you right now because I'm not about to do a study of magic and sorcery through the history of the world or a word study on this Greek word magos that's used here. Um, And the reason is because that's not really the point of this. That's not what Axe is trying to do with this story of magic. Um, To help explain this, I'm going to steal a Bible reading tip from Jen Wilkin because um, she's really good at coming up with Bible reading mottos. One of the things she says is, main things are plain things and plain things are main things, which is pretty simple already, but just to explain that, what we're talking about is the biblical authors are writing with a purpose. They're trying to be understood and trying to make their point clear. So the points that they're trying to make, they're going to spend time talking about, and the points Uh, The things that are side topics, they're not going to spend a lot of time on. And as I go through this passage, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. So the main thing here and the main point of how this magic is being used is not to explain what it is or any of the details of the magic. This is the same way with other accounts of magic and acts. Um, Their point is to set the stage for what things were like in this Samaritan city before Philip came. So the point is that whatever the details of this magic were, Simon was using it to make himself great, right? He's building himself up, saying that he himself is somebody great. So this is a sidebar to our storyline. We kind of jump back in time, and it sets up this upcoming conflict by explaining that before Philip arrived, Simon had been the one that everyone was paying attention to, that everyone was amazed by, and that everyone was calling great. They even call him the power of God that is called great. So that's the setup for our current scene where Philip arrives. So we'll pick back up in verse 12 
when the passage kind of jumps back into the timeline of once Philip is there. It says, but when they, this is the Samaritans, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. <clears throat> so Philip arrives and preaches the gospel, and the Samaritans now pay attention to him instead of Simon. They're amazed by the works of the Holy Spirit instead of Simon's magic. They believe the gospel and they're baptized. And we even hear, see here that Simon himself believes and is baptized. So the initial report here sounds fantastic. Like the whole city has turned away from Simon um, to Jesus. Even Simon has turned away from his previous magic and he's believing Jesus. But we have to keep going because that's not the end of this story. That's not where things end. So let's read on, picking up in verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now I need to pause again, because there's another point here uh, that's brought up where we kind of have to ask what's going on, because we heard that these Samaritans believed Philip. They believed the gospel message, and they were baptized, but now we find out that they did not receive the Holy Spirit at first. Um, and to kind of explain what's going on here, I'm stealing another Bible motto from Jen Wilkin, and that is, when reading Bible narratives, we have to think about whether things are prescriptive or descriptive. So prescriptive events just means this is prescribing a way of life. It's telling you this is a good way, this action is a good way to live, and you should copy this. Um, an example of that would be that repetition of preaching the gospel that we talked about in Acts 8 where we see that four times put forward as something that the apostles and followers of Jesus are doing, and it's resulting in people coming to faith and glory to God. So we can read this passage, and a proper application would be to say, we should proclaim the gospel boldly wherever we are. That's a right way to read this. <clears throat> the descriptive accounts, on the other hand, are just telling us about the events as they're happening. There's not necessarily a moral stance towards it. So most of what we read in biblical narrative, whether it's the Old Testament, the Gospels, or Acts, it's just a description of events. It's telling us what has happened. It's not saying this is the way things should always happen. And a key of knowing when you're reading a descriptive account is when you see the same things happening in different ways, which is what we see with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. So from Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes down with tongues of fire, to other accounts where the Holy Spirit either arrives or it's given just as people believe or just as people are baptized to hear where it's after their baptism uh, when there's laying on of hands and prayer of the apostles. There's all these different accounts uh, which clues us into saying none of these is a key takeaway as this is the way it should always happen. So if you were to read this passage and say the only way to receive the Holy Spirit is for the apostles to lay hands on you and pray for you, that is a wrong application of this text. And when we take things out of, out of context like that and misuse the verse, it's extremely dangerous. That's actually how most of the heresies in the history of the church come from, taking some piece of scripture, twisting it out of context, and creating theology or doctrine based on that. <clears throat> so 
So we see, by the way, that Simon responds um, in verse 19 that he's actually misunderstanding the meaning of these events in real time while he's living them. When he sees these people receiving the Holy Spirit, these people are being indwelt by the creator of the universe, and rather than glorifying God, Simon sees that power as something to be taken for himself, something that can make himself great. And so we're going to see next that Peter immediately puts him in his place and rebukes him. So let's start up in verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So the seriousness of Simon's mistake is very clear in Peter's rebuke there, right? Saying, may your silver perish with you. You have no part or lot in this matter. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. This is a harsh rebuke. And how can this be the case for a man who we just read believed and was baptized? Those two things, at least when I first read this, um, seem like they're, they can't go together. So if we look back to verse 13 where we hear about when Philip believes, we can see some clues that maybe his heart wasn't quite right from the beginning. Um, so back in verse 13, we see even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon was amazed, but here we see what he was actually amazed about is the power that's on display. He's seeing the signs and great miracles, and that's what's amazing him. He's not captivated by Christ, at least it doesn't seem that way in this text, he's captivated by the power of these miracles. Simon sees these signs that Philip performs through the Spirit to direct people to Christ, but instead he is distracted. He gets so hung up focusing on the signs that he never makes it to the destination. And Simon's response to these miracles is about as illogical as if we were to drive from here to Northern California, to within miles of Yosemite, go to that road sign and stand next to it and take our picture with it, and then drive back home, never following it on to that destination. But before I mock Simon too much for his sin, I'm going to go ahead and confess that I'm in the same boat a lot of times. I can't even keep track of how often I can get uh, distracted from Jesus by the very things that he's placed in my life to direct me to him. It's so easy for me to get caught up preparing for a Bible study or a sermon so that when I'm reading God's word, I'm not actually growing closer to him. It's so easy for me on, uh, with worship to get so caught up playing the right notes that I'll end up at the end of a Sunday morning realizing I didn't really worship at all. And these structures, these disciplines, these things we put in place um, are good. They're good things that are meant to direct us to Christ, whether it's Bible study, small groups, a church service, a sermon, a worship song, um, and even not a formerly Christian activity, but uh, relationships with friends and family, um, any kind of blessings we have in life can be good things if they're used properly, right? Even natural wonders like the beauty of Yosemite Valley can direct us to glorify God. But if we let these things become a distraction, and we focus more on them than the thing they're meant to direct us to, we'd miss the point. So church, if we walk out of this building today saying, 
man, that was awesome music. It's missed the point. If we walk out saying, there was some great fellowship, I'm so glad I got to see these people, and that's all we take away, we've missed the point. If you walk away saying that was a great sermon or that was a cool picture of Yosemite, you've absolutely missed the point. Because the goal of all these things we're doing today is that you would walk out these doors knowing God better. Or maybe even you would walk out knowing for the first time that God loves you and that he wants you to know him. In church, our passage today ends with another repetition of the simple truth of the gospel in the same way it began, and so I want to close today the same way we began, which is focusing on that primary sign that God has given us to direct us to him. In verse 25, after their encounter with Simon, we hear about uh, the apostles as they're returning to Jerusalem. It says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans along the way. So guys, if you leave here with nothing else, I want you to leave here with that simple truth of the gospel that's meant to direct us to Christ. The simple truth and message of his love and mercy that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead and he's sitting in eternity inviting you to know him and inviting you to spend that eternity in joy with him. Let me pray.